Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the premier place to go get your digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are thousands of titles to choose from in a multitude of genres, and you can play them on just about any gadget out there, whether it's your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, whatever. And here is an amazing deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial. Go get yourself a New York Times bestseller like The Art of Fielding by Chad Harbach or The Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern, or The Paris Wife by Paula McLean. Any one of these titles can be yours, free of charge. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a wonderful deal available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is the program. You're here. You made it. Welcome back. It's good to be with you. My guest today is Rex Pickett. Uh, he made a name for himself a few years ago as the author of the novel Sideways, which was uh, then, of course, famously adapted into an Academy Award uh, award-winning film by Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor. They wrote the script. The rest is history. It won the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. And, of course, the, the movie version starred Paul Giamatti and Thomas Hayden Church. And it was a smashing success, and it won a lot of plaudits. So uh, Rex, these days, is working on a pilot for HBO. He's doing a stage adaptation of Sideways for the Ruskin Theater Group over in Santa Monica, California. And recently, he self-published a novel called Vertical, which is the sequel to Sideways. And it features Miles and Jack, the same two lead characters, out on the road. Uh, the book is a bit of an odyssey, a road odyssey. And the publication of it was something of an odyssey as well. So Rex and I are going to talk about that and a bunch of other stuff in just a moment. Uh, before we get into that, I want to read some mail. Uh, thanks, as always, to everybody for uh, the tweets and the Facebook messages and the kind emails. Really appreciate it. Uh, I want to read one email in particular that came in from Canada. Uh, it says, Dear Brad, I listened to other people in Canada. I was walking around listening to the Ben Laurie interview the other day. 
when I was instantly transported to listening to the Megan Boyle interview back in November. The Lori and Boyle episodes are probably my favorites so far. They embody something unique to your podcast, a way of talking about writing that has the same qualities we look for in books. I think it has something to do with risk. There's something to the awkwardness of these interviews that I find incredibly comforting. They are offbeat and honest in a way you generally don't find in these things. I'm in a pretty weird place right now. I'm 24 and in the process of dropping out of law school and moving back to my parents' house in suburbia. Everyone is worried and disappointed. I'm having a lot of doubt, but when I think back to November, I think things are going to work out. It was in November that I listened to your conversation with Megan Boyle in my apartment in Montreal. The lights were off, and I felt like I had fucked up my life by coming to law school. I don't know that I'll ever be a writer, but your interviews make it seem a bit more possible. I'm not sure why I feel the need to tell you this. I hope you keep the podcast going. I look forward to it each week. Sincerely, Jeff. So thank you very much, Jeff. That's awfully kind. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to kind of contemplate the idea that maybe Jeff is saying that the podcast and the Megan Boyle and Ben Laurie episodes in particular helped to cement his decision to drop out of law school. You know, I don't know if I'm misreading that, uh, but it seems like maybe that's true, possibly. And uh, that's not a small thing. That's a life-changing decision. And it's just odd to think that maybe uh, this show would have anything to do with something like that, even uh, even playing a small role. But apparently, maybe it does. And uh, I guess you take that as fair warning, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, one of the side effects of listening to this podcast is that it will rob you of traditional ambition and cause you to cut ties with institutions of higher learning. So uh, on a broader level, it brings up the issue of dropping out. I think thematically that's interesting, uh, you know, per, you know, as it pertains to writers and the writing life. And uh, I do think that, you know, the, the impulse to drop out is integral to the writer's DNA. You know, that impulse to kind of live on the periphery and disassociate from group organisms and traditional structures and to instead try to live as an individual, as a kind of like lone wolf apart. And, uh, and then, of course, there's that irony, you know, the kind of the writer's irony that you spend countless hours alone in front of a computer sp- uh, in front of a computer screen, uh, all locked, you know, locked away in some apartment or some room or something, and you do this in a desperate attempt to connect with other people through your writing. Uh, and I don't know if desperate is even the right word. Maybe desperate isn't the right descriptor, but uh, maybe urgent is the right descriptor in an urgent attempt. And I think that's you know that that's accurate because in order to make good art, I think it has to come from a place of urgency. Or, or at least most of the time. So, uh, yeah, as far as I go, you know, in, in with regard to dropping out, I definitely have it. And, uh, you know, in, in my past, I've entertained fantasies of living off the grid. It's something that I've written about. It's something that I've talked about. And, uh, you know, I go back and forth between wanting to live in, you know, on the grid and wanting to live off the grid. And uh, I've lived on the grid, squarely on the grid for most of my life, if not all of my life, I guess all of my life. Uh, except for the summer that I lived on the Appalachian Trail, which was not easy. But, uh, you know, right now, at this particular moment in my life, I'm pretty set on Los Angeles. And uh, I did have a big uh, period of contemplation earlier this year, a reconsideration uh, about where to live. And, uh, you know, my wife and I were going back and forth. And I think it's because we have a kid and we're trying to ask good questions about where, you know, where are we going to raise her and that kind of thing. And so there were some possibilities being explored. And, uh, and then I remember landing back in Los Angeles after being away one weekend and it dawned on me that I really like it here. Uh, you know, I, I like it. I like how fucked up it is. I like that. It's always sunny. Uh, you know, I I like Los Angeles 
And uh, I sort of realized that in a concrete way, or at least I think it's a concrete way. And it tempered my desire to live uh, off the grid, on the periphery, somewhere strange. Uh, but, you know, I look back even further, and uh, I remember that I had even like an, an even more intense impulses uh, in my younger years, in my 20s. Like, I remember entertaining fantasies of living on a monastery. Like, I think this happens to me every so often, where I imagine living on a monastery, but not necessarily uh, as a monk. You know, I'm thinking of, like, Buddhist monasteries. That's kind of the way that I lean. And uh, I don't think I want to be a monk. I think I just want to live among them and shave my head and go live in some kind of beautiful monastery and just like meditate until I die, which, you know, might be overstating it and might be, uh, you know, it's a little ridiculous, but you know what I'm saying? It's just the, the desire to, to take it to some sort of extreme and to, uh, to live some sort of spiritual existence in an extreme way off the grid somewhere. And, uh, you know, kind of part and parcel to this is this weird compulsion that, that I have to this day to shave my head. And I don't know why this is exactly, but when I'm looking at myself in the mirror and if I'm holding electric clippers, which sometimes does happen, uh, I'll get this urge to shave my head bald. Uh, but I'm scared to do it because I, I have this irrational fear that the hair you know, might not grow back. Uh, or else it's like a vanity thing where, you know, I feel like my features might be too aggressive to accommodate a bald head. Uh, you know, like my nose might be too weird for that or something. And, uh, you know, I do feel like there are only so, you know, there some heads don't look good bald and some heads do. And, uh, you know, a guy like Michael Jordan, uh, or Bruce Willis, like those guys can pull it off, but not everybody can. So anyway, you know, thinking about this, like this compulsion to want to shave my head, or at least having that sort of weird urge. And then the whole, you know, living off the grid or living on the grid thing and contemplating that. It brings me back to when I was a senior in college, uh, kind of at a similar juncture in my life uh, to where Jeff is now, you know, or thereabouts. And I remember my senior thesis film sort of addressed these issues. It sort of addressed this particular impulse or these conflicting impulses. And, uh, you know, the, the, the film was like a, an experimental documentary. I guess that's what you would call it. And uh, in it, I'm, I'm being interviewed on camera. And I'm like talking directly into the lens and uh, I'm, I'm talking about this episode from the night before where I was supposed to be studying for final exams and I was procrastinating and I didn't feel like studying. And I went into my bathroom in my little college apartment and I picked up these electric clippers and I was looking at myself in the mirror and I decided to shave my head bald and I actually started to do it, which I think is the only time I've ever really taken action in that regard and really like acted on the impulse. So I start to shave my head and then I balk, I chicken out. And, uh, so in this, in this, you know, my, my senior thesis film, I'm looking into the camera telling this story and then I'm pointing to my head and I have this like white patch on the side of my head, this bald, bald spot on the side of my head as evidence. So anyway, dropping out the compulsion to drop out, it seems to exist in most writers, uh, at least to some degree. But uh, what's odd is that it's often coupled with a strong desire to engage the world. These are conflicting impulses. And so maybe that's why I live in a big, crazy city, but tend to exist as a solo organism floating in its chaos. You know, I'm in the middle of it, but I also want to drop out of it while remaining in it somehow. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature 
I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, so I guess uh, a good place to start is uh, to just give people a little bit of background. I mean, you, you wrote the novel Sideways, which was then made into a very successful film, Academy Award winning screenplay. Uh, you had you know, an experience that I think a lot of writers sort of dream of. And you can't ask for a better person to adapt your work than Alexander Payne. Well, without question, and not just Alexander Payne, but his co-writer at the time, Jim Taylor. Yeah, and uh, I feel I feel bad because Alexander Payne, because he's the director, gets so much of the spotlight. But Jim Taylor is always his co-writer. Correct? Yeah, they're very uh, they're very careful about their working relationship. And actually, uh, the Descendants, Alexander Payne's new film, he has two other writers on that. Jim Taylor wasn't involved for the first time in his career. But I always just, you know, I like to give credit where credit is due because sometimes that doesn't happen in Hollywood, as we know. Right. <laughs> we can get into that. Right. But, um, yeah, I mean, it. Uh, at one point I, I answered a question about was I happy with the adaptation and with the, the you know, the eventual film. And I said, you know, I've, I've reached the, uh, you know, Mount Everest of adaptations. I mean, I, I was that fortunate that, first of all, that Alexander Payne got involved, A, because he's an uncompromising filmmaker, and B, at the time when he made the film, he had the power to make the film. He wanted to make it with the actors he wanted to make it. I mean, Fox Searchlight's deal with him was real simple. At two hours, you can do whatever you want. Hmm. And that's, I mean, look, in somebody else's hands, I was so broke when I wrote the novel, I would have sold it to anybody. I mean, I could have sold it to Michael Bay, and he might have had two guys going down to Cabo doing tequila shooters. I mean, seriously, that's what happens. Then you take your money and you run. Yeah. Um, so I was very fortunate somebody really honored the novel. And they not only honored it, but they, the adaptation was incredibly faithful. One example is the novel's written in first person from the standpoint of Miles, so you can't go in the book where Miles doesn't go. In, um, in the film, you could. They never do. If you watch the film again, they stay totally with Miles. They stay entirely in the first person without using voiceover. That's, I, I couldn't believe it when I saw the, uh, when I saw the each individual screenplay they showed me also they included me they showed me every draft of the script oh really yes okay so let's let's dial it back then a little okay. bit like you wrote the book published the book and then it got acquired uh for adaptation like how did it work well I, interestingly i just wrote a very long thirteen thousand word introduction to the hardcover edition of sideways which we're just coming out with and it's a six-part serialization on stage32online.com or stage32.com. And we're right – we just put the fifth installment up today. And it answers this entire question. It's a long, long you know, answer to the question. But the novel was written in 98, 99. And at that time, uh, my then agent fell in love with it. And we went out to both – I had another novel – 
that we couldn't publish, which was a mystery novel called La Prisima. So thus Miles, the guy who has a novel he can't publish. And so when I wrote Sideways, I was dead broke. I was I was ready to drive out of town. Well, I was going to say, I mean, it feels, you, you know, you, I remember seeing that movie alone, okay? I remember being in there and watching the story, and, you know, it feels personal. You know, some writing you just know, and I love that kind of writing, you know, and I love that kind of storytelling. Um, but, it, you know, it raises a natural question, like, how, you know, how much um, uh, personal experience was it drawn from? Well, again, I, I and I'm going to tell you as much as I can, but, I, you know, I don't want to go on, you know, at length here. But, uh, you know, I encourage people to go to stage 32 and read it because it's a it's a long thing and people are really are loving it because it really details the whole, you know, story. But uh, the novel is very personal. It's more personal than people might imagine. At the time that I wrote it, I was in such a state of despond and despair and, and, and destitution, if you want to know the truth, that, um, you know, I my fear was that if I wrote a novel that was despairing, that um, really mirrored my soul at the time, that nobody would read it and would be solipsistic navel-gazing. So I said, you know what, I'm going to lace it with comedy. And and I think it was that blending. It, if it was just a comedy about two guys going off to a bachelor party I think that it could have just been one of those ha-ha films and you didn't really think about it. But I think the soul that's there, the heart, because people still remember that film to today, you know, really came from, you know, that, that life that I lived through the 90s. I mean, you know, in, in the early 90s, um, my second feature film uh, that I made with my ex-wife, she produced it and acted in it. We got a theatrical release. It bombed. My mother had a massive stroke. My younger brother came in and took over her care and you know, uh, basically fleeced her of about a half a million dollars, and that's what my, my modest trust fund. And now I'm really broke, and I'm now I'm divorced, and I had to take over my mother's care, and that's a long story, a lot of which is in my new novel, the sequel to Sideways Vertical, oddly enough. And that's another long story. And so the 90s was a very, very, very tough decade for me to hang in there. And um, and I wrote a mystery novel, as I said, La Prisma, and it got, it, oh, and prior to that, my agent had died of AIDS, so now I had no agent. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, any normal person would have headed straight to, you know, Big Five and gotten themselves a rifle and killed themselves. <laughs> I've often joked, you know, if I could have afforded a gun, I would have shot myself. But, um, you know, and so I wrote a mystery novel, and it, it got me a new publishing agent, Jess Taylor, and it was a wonderful guy, but we couldn't sell it. And, uh, and, and it takes a long time in the traditional publishing world to find out. I mean, we're talking 70, 80 rejection letters, and it went on for almost a year. And I, and Isn't I, that terrible, though, that process? Yeah, and it, even worse, you know, I'd be sitting on my couch, and I could see my mailbox through the front window. And I was represented then by Curtis Brown, LTD, and <laughs> I could see their, you know— um, uh, you know, on on their envelope, you know, they had, you know, return address, you know, letterhead or whatever. And I'm, oh, no, here comes another one. Because they always would send me the rejection letters. If they had sold the novel, they'd be on the phone. Right. They're not going to send you letters. Well, that's <laughs> what I always say. It's bad news comes via email. Good news comes on a phone call. Well, not only, I'll even I'll even go more specific. Good news, good news comes via a phone call usually before noon. Right. You know, if you get a call from your agent after 6, it's the call they don't want to make. But anyway, uh, so that went on. And obviously, I kept writing, doing little things. Uh, to keep me afloat and uh, or even things you know I'm not proud of and um, and then so what, what it, do you mean by that? Well, I mean you know rewrites of things for little or no money um, you know that would have been against WJ rules and regulations and other things and uh, I don't know maxing out credit cards and then just ignoring creditors and uh, you know the, all that stuff that uh, you know sounds cliche today but uh, you know I was living that life building debt and everything else 
So when I sat down, I mean, I started, but in the early 90s, I started going up to the San Inez Valley, which is the setting of Sideways, really not because I was into wine, it was to play golf. Mm. You know, oddly, I, I got back into the game just to get my mind out of my life, and there was a beautiful golf course up there that nobody was on, and it was a really cheap vacation for me. I mean, and then I would stay at the Windmill Inn like Miles and Jack, and then I had to have a place to eat, and I trundled down to the hitching post where, uh, you know, there was nobody there. And now you can't get in. It's like Rocky Horror Picture Show there. It's ridiculous. So um, And so it was building in me. And I said, God, this is a beautiful place. And this is really – and I, it only cost me 150 bucks for the whole trip, really. And I get some golf in, whatever. And then I learned that it was a wine world. And I started to going to wine tastings. Then I started taking friends up. And one of the friends I took up – this is all over a five, six-year period with all the other stuff going on in my life and just barely getting by. And my brother – you know, loaning me money and my ex-wife loaning me money and, you know, just, you know, um, you know, just to keep going because they all believed in me, you know. And uh, I took a friend up there who was the model for the Jack character, but that was unwittingly. I didn't know his name. And we were going from tasting room to tasting room and, you know, drinking and uh, and I was cracking him up. And he said, Rex, you should write this as a screenplay. And so this would have been 96, 97. I wrote Sideways initially as a screenplay, but it didn't work. And... It so didn't work, I didn't even show it to my agent. I was afraid he was going to dump me. So then I was going to wine tastings in my area in Santa Monica where I lived. Thank God for rent control. And uh, otherwise there never would have been a sideways. I'd have been go- <laughs> I would have been long gone if it wasn't for that. I Trust me. And it, it was on Saturday from 3 to 5, and I was so lonely at the time um, and so alienated. It was a fun little area uh, in the back there for $4. You could taste wines every Saturday. It was like it was my only social outlet that I had. And um, so I wrote a short story about a wine tasting there that sort of degenerates into a brawl. But I wrote it in first person from the standpoint of a character named Miles. And I'll ne- and this is in my six-part serialization on there, so I'm just repeating myself. But I got to the end of that short story, which was pretty funny. It was all about these wine snobs and you know knowing them and all these characters. Because I really draw on real events. I'm, I'm big. My big word is verisimilitude. I just love drawing from the real. And I remember I stood up. I said, oh, my God, they're sideways, but it will be a novel. It will be written in first person because the first person allowed me to have that voice, that unique, or some have said, perspective that I have on reality, which you don't get in a screenplay. Screenplay is he walked into the room, he hit him in the face, or, you know, it's all third person, essentially, and dry, really. You know, character really comes out of um, dialogue, but in, in a novel can come out of that voice. And I stood up, I never forget, I just stood up and said, oh my God, there it is. Jack comes in and rescues Miles from this melee, and then they take off on the trip. And th- And I wrote it in nine weeks. Wow. And a lot of people will say, well, you know, how long did it take you to write sideways? They say nine weeks. But really, we're talking 10 years because I started going up to the San Inez Valley in early 90s. And I was really unwittingly building, you know. So when, when I finally sat down to write it, Brad, I mean, when I would walk into the hitching post in, in the novel when I'm writing, I'm there. I can smell the place. I know what's on the menu. I know who's there. I can describe it almost, you know, like I was – writing it right there which some people think i wrote it at the bar at the hitching post which isn't true but uh, <laughs> so and and the and the jack character was based on my friend roy and he really is that character he's he's big he's broad he's he's um you know he, he's an extra he's a classic extrovert i'm a classic introvert and so i had those those opposites which was really good but i i know what he would say and what he would do in every given situation i would walk into and the rest was invention you know all i had the ending i knew they were going to make it to this wedding and then I just decided to say, okay, it's going to be Murphy's Law. Everything that could go wrong will go wrong. 
and how far can I go? And at one point I went a little too far and had to pull back just a little bit. And that was it, nine weeks. I mean, I couldn't wait to get up and write every morning. And that's a rare thing for real writers. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I feel like, too, what you were talking about with regard to the gestation period, that's a common story. People say, oh, I wrote it really quickly, but it actually took me like a decade to get to the point where I could. I had that experience. Really? And you just you just have to, you have to I think your subconscious is doing whatever it needs to do to get you ready to, to tell the story, you know? Yeah, I think uh, Madison Smart Bell once said that, uh, you know, you should write every day in order to keep the instrument tuned so that when that inspiration does come to you, like it did when I was writing the short story, that you're ready to go. It's not like I didn't write for nine years. I was writing scripts. I had written this novel, Operisma. I'd rewritten it. I mean, you know, I was ready, but sometimes things come into this wonderfully felicitous confluence, and at that moment they did. But, you know, it didn't mean when I was done that everything was going to be perfect. It was still a long struggle from that point on you know okay so you finished that draft in nine weeks and then what happens well so i showed it to my agent and he just he flipped he he, he loved it i mean the the stuff on my answering machine the messages from i'm 100 pages in i'm loving this i'm 200 pages in oh my god what and you don't often get this from agents and i also showed it to a producer friend who ended up being the producer on the uh, film Michael London and he absolutely fell in love with it and so they had a two-prong attack one was to go out to both publishing and film with it um, and now I and, and and I have to back up here Jess Taylor my publishing agent had come out to be the book to film agent at Endeavor so suddenly now I had whereas two years previously before I'd written my mystery novel La Prisma I had no agent because he had died of AIDS and I had nothing <laughs> you know now I had Curtis Brown LTD on the publishing side I had Endeavor on this side, which is now William Morris Endeavor. And um, and so we went out to publishing. And we, I, I think the initial submission was 18, and the rejection letters were so nasty, so vilifying. Uh, I, I mean, <laughs> it was like on, he pulled the novel. He said, Rex, you know, we, we just got to pull it. Film didn't want it at all. But one of the submissions that Jess Taylor, my publishing agent who had come to Endeavor to be their book-to-film agent, was to Alexander Payne's agent, David Lawner. He literally walked it down the hall. It was an inner office thing. And um, since then, other people have taken credit for getting it to Alexander Payne. It's, you know, we don't need to go over that. We're trying to be on a sunny note here on this cloudy day. <laughs> uh, it's funny how the credit grabbers jump in. It's bizarre. But, um, but no, Jess Taylor did. But it took Alexander a year to read it. He was hot off of election at that time. And so he was being submitted a lot of stuff. I mean... Uh, Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections, many, many stuff, because he works usually from source material. Yeah. And actually, I owe a great debt to somebody who doesn't get any credit, who was Alexander's assistant, a guy named Brian Beery. He was the one who really read it first. Um, but we got to back up, <laughs> tell another part here. He was the one that read it first, but let's back up. So this was, it was a year. Halfway through that, Jess was having trouble in Endeavor. It's a high-powered agency, you know, and... Uh, he had a nervous breakdown, left the business, and this is in my story. I mean, I um, uh, last I saw him, um, you know, it was a breakfast in Beverly Hills, and I walked him to his psychiatrist's office, and he was barely able to walk. It, it, his soul had been destroyed by Endeavor. Now I'm really nowhere. Film didn't want it. Publishing didn't want it. And now he's leaving the business. Holy no, I shit. have nothing. Yeah. So I hung on. You know, the producer, Mike London, kind of pushed it around, no fee. I think at one point I said... Michael, you know, for twenty five hundred dollars, you can you can have a three year option on this, and I will give you twenty five percent of everything I make on it—film, book, play, anything—in perpetuity. And he turned me down. 
that's how badly I needed twenty five hundred dollars, and he just turned me down. So anyway, that's that's another story. But um, so I was really nowhere. I mean, I was ready to drive out of town pretty much. You know, I really just didn't have anything, any gas left in the tank, Brad. To be honest with you, and then. Um, I just got a call. I, I'd gotten a new agent. The agent who replaced Jess took it on, but he, nothing was really happening. And I just got a call. I, I was over at, I don't know, Baja Fresh. It was something I could afford or something. <laughs> and I came back, and there were two messages on my machine. Usually I just saw a zero. This was back, you know, we're talking 99, 2000, when you actually had an answering machine. And the first one was the new agent Endeavor just screaming on the phone. And normally their assistants call you. No, he was calling me, Rex, oh, my God, oh, my God, Alexander Payne just got off a plane. Sideways is going to be, you know, whatever. And, and one minute later, Michael London was in there too, you know, because he was now sort of, he felt attached. He thinks he got the book to Alexander Payne. It's an absolute blatant lie, and he pushed that in the press. He even says he came up with the title and everything else. But whatever. Um, well, no, but you know, it's it, they, one were, of the they things, were screaming on the phone. It was unbelievable. Well, no, one of the things that strikes me about what you say is the speed with which it happens. That's another thing I all, always hear is that when, when good stuff happens it, and it, when a deal happens, it tends to happen really quickly, or at least that's the way that it seems. You know, when, when it all finally kind of comes together, it, it doesn't, it's not, you know, there's a, there's a really slow process when you're submitting, there's a really slow, and then when someone wants it, done. Well, it's true. I mean, a lot of people obviously didn't get it. The publishing industry pretty much is probably not the right word. They pejorativized it as an oversex screenplay. And they don't like screenwriters because they think they make too much money for writing too few words and they're not literary. Literally, they, they told me that. And it did read a lot like a screenplay. In fact, the truth is I don't write novels to win Pulitzer Prizes. I write novels to be movies, to be honest with you. Not that I don't have an affection for the literary. I really do. But I really believe in character-driven um, you know, novels, in which you know, can be made into films. So, you know, there was, you know, and, and the film, well, they just didn't get it. Two guys go wine tasting with Alexander Payne got it. This one guy got it, and he got—he literally got off a plane from the Edinburgh Film Festival and went straight to a payphone and called his agent, David Lawner, who then told my new agent, Brian Lipson, and he started screaming, everyone's screaming. And then I met Alexander Payne, and we talked, and he was initially going to shoot. Where did that happen? Here in L.A.? Yeah. He had an office here in L.A., and uh, he he initially said, I'm, I'm just going to adapt this really quickly, and I'm going to shoot it in Super 16 down and dirty. I go, oh, okay. All I wanted was an option, Brad. I, I mean, literally, just give me like five grand. I'm, I'm I'm this broke, so I you know put him together with you know with Michael London, which was the biggest thing that I ever did for him, and um, which he's never acknowledged, but whatever. And uh, you know because I really needed you know Michael needed to force the option in order to tie himself contractually with Alexander Payne. Alexander figured, I'm sure. Well, I don't really need to option this because I'm Alexander Payne and whatever. And he's a great guy, but. But Michael forced that, which put money in my pocket. So I, I owe him for that, you know. But then everything else that happened after that, maybe not so much. So they optioned it, and then they went around to various people. And Artisan Entertainment was going to, um, Artisan Entertainment was going to uh, had greenlit it for ten million dollars, and it was front page Daily Variety, Hollywood Reporter News. And this would be early two thousand. And so my publishing agent went nuts. Let's go back out with a book. He did. Nobody wanted it. Huh. Front page. Unbelievable. Alexander Payne goes sideways. My name's on the front page, and they didn't want it. Wow. So then... That's depressing. And so, But I figured, okay, fuck you. You know, I'm going to... Uh, you know, it's going to be a movie, and, and you'll see, and I'll make more money, you know, whatever. 
But uh, and it was never about money to me. I want to say this. You know, it was really about the work, and 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 I mean that not disingenuously at all. And about you know having it be the film that I had, excuse me, the film of the book that I had conceived and, and imagined. Um, and then I get a call somewhere, I don't know, in March of 2000. After that all went down, three months after that went happened, and Alexander said, "Well, I've decided to make this other film called About Schmidt." And I went, oh shit, <laughs> okay. And that was that was two years, but they continued to re-up the option. So a film that I thought was going to happen before about Schmidt was supposed to be his film after election. Mm-hmm. Didn't happen until after election. So you don't. I mean, do you know why? Did he just? I mean, he just got hot a hotter for the about Schmidt script, or he had an easier. I guess he got Jack Nicholson, or you know. Well, that that's one thing. It, it's it's a little more complicated. I'll try to just you know uh, synopsize it quickly. He had written a script back in the 90s called The Coward for New Line. And then they had a book called About Schmidt, and he was adapting it. I mean, a lot of people in Hollywood have different things going on. I mean, if you go on IMDb, they've got a lot of projects in, you know, that are announced or whatever. I mean, I think Sideways was very much first and foremost on his mind, but there was this other one here. And so he went back to that script, The Coward, and suddenly Jack Nicholson got interested. And he really was the only, other than maybe Gene Hackman, I don't think he would have made it. And when Jack said he wanted to do it. Yeah, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And actually, it worked out better for me because uh, they did keep optioning. Obviously, I had to sweat it out for two years. I did write another screenplay called Repairman that got optioned. And uh, it still is one of those scripts that, you know, may get made. You know, my agents to this day still send it out. But I I said to Alexander Payne at one point when he came back to Sideways after about Schmidt, I said, I think you had to make a film about maturity in order to go back and make a film about immaturity, which I really believe. You know, that number one, and also after about Schmidt, he was now even more powerful. In, right. ter- in terms of being able to make a film and have final cut and having no one tell him about casting. I mean, when they went out with with Sideways, um, I mean, they owed a first look to two studios. I won't name the people, but they're some of the most powerful people in Hollywood. And they said, we, we want to do it. We love it. We'll give you $30 million to do it. But there's no way in hell we're doing it with Paul Giamatti. Hmm. They literally said, we're not doing it with him, with these unknowns. And Alexander... One of his one of his forts is is really casting. He's he's great at casting. And well, I was just going to say that because like you couldn't. I mean, you're 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 lucky in that you have Alexander Payne directing the film and then writing the adaptation. Right. You can't get luckier. I don't think. No. Good, you know, no. for a literary adaptation. But then, uh, you know, the element of casting in films and it, it, it's you can you can follow it in any good film. They always pick just the right person for the role. Like I look at the way that the Coen brothers cast right. and how much I love their films. And I think such a, I mean, it's such an underrated part of the process. There's the writing, there's the directing, there's the cinematography. But if you don't have the right people plugged into it, it's, it, you know, I don't think it can work. Uh, the great director, Carol Reese, said the most nervous part of making a film for him was the casting process. If you cast wrong, you're fucked. Right. I mean, that's it. And unfortunately, in Hollywood, you're absolutely right. I, I mean, you have to have the material. I mean, I don't care how well you cast it. If you've got crappy material, it's just going to be great actors. I, I, don't, I won't name the, one of the current films out there, but it has a lot of great actors in it, but it's just a complete dog. Um, you know... But if you, if you have great material, casting is absolutely crucial. And, and he wanted people who were unknowns. In fact, George Clooney wanted to play the Jack character really yeah, badly. I remember reading that. Yeah, and uh, you know, he said, who's going to believe he was an out-of-worked actor? And George kind of laughed it off and said, you're right. You know, it would have been a stunt, a trick, a joke. No, yeah. that, I mean, and yeah, you, you read, but, I read that and I remember thinking, exactly. Like, what a great decision, even though it would probably be difficult to turn down 
George Clooney. <laughs> but but here's the point, Brad, you know, which is other directors lesser than Alexander Payne would have capitulated to that decision and say, oh, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll work with George because not only will they get more money to make the film, but the film will get greenlit. Alexander Payne, this is the important point. The reason there's Paul Giamatti and Thomas Hayden Church who had more or less just hung, hung it up after eight years of wing some TV show I never saw um, they, um, you know, they're they're very fortunate that Alexander Payne got this material because uh, I don't. They would never, they would never have had a role like that because he had the power. Once he turned down the two studios and said, "No, I'm going to do it the way I want to do it, and I'm not going to do it with Sean Penn and George Clooney or whoever the A-listers were," Fox Searchlight uh, and their then head Peter Rice, who's a wonderful guy, just said, "At this 15 to 16 million you know, budget, and they all took a lot less, but they got, you know, gross points and deferred payments that made them a lot of money. Uh, you, you can do what you want. Cast it with whoever you want. They let them alone. Hmm. And he chose to be let alone for less money for future consideration if it did well, which it did, as opposed to taking the big money, but then bringing in, because so often what we see with films is we see just, okay, they do this all the time. You go in with your agency, you write a script, and they love it or whatever. Okay, and they, they drop lists. What about this person? What about this person? Whatever. And they're they're dropping in people who may or may not really be right. It's more based on whatever their foreign, you know, Q rating is or whatever. Right, right. And but it's it you know, getting a film greenlit is the holy grail in Hollywood. And you'll do anything. I mean, films are miscast all the time. We see that same sprinkling of talent, it appears. And and to take those chances, say like, you know, I haven't seen the uh, the girl with the uh, dragon tattoo, but you know, to, to choose Rooney Mara when you had Natalie Portman and others vying for that role, Scarlett Johansson is a power is is um, you know, David Fincher's power, you know, that uh, a tribute to his his power to say, no, I want somebody who's unique, unusual, who hasn't really done much, and now she's going to be in this trilogy. So. Well, and then, and then the other point too is is just like with uh, with Sideways, where. Um, you know, I think I read I read an interview with Fincher where he, you know, the reason he fought for Rooney Mara was because he he believed that the Elizabeth Sound I think it's Elizabeth Sounder yeah. I think that's her name but yeah. he wanted that character to be anonymous. If you had some sort of you know uh, prior relationship with that face and that person, it would somehow affect the the storytelling. You know, without question. Actually, uh, I was the last writer on David Fincher's Alien Three, his very first film, which is a long story. It was very interesting work on him. He's a very intense guy. He's also somebody who's completely uncompromising, a very different kind of filmmaker than Alexander Payne. And I but think, similar in that way. Well, in, in being uncompromising. That's they, what I mean. They're, they're total perfectionists, both of them, and they're they're very involved at every level. Uh, Fincher, a little bit less with the screenplay because Alexander's a writer, but Fincher, I mean, he's very involved with it as a director, but he's not a writer. But, I mean, production detail and everything, these guys are, they're meticulous. It's, it's unbelievable. When I actually saw it at work, I, I couldn't believe how much they, every frame, they, they've got their fingerprints on every, you know, a uh, part of that frame. Well, I mean, yeah, no, that it's, it seems like that's a common thread. You know, the, I, I keep talking about this, but like when Steve Jobs died and there was that like media deluge of just like Steve Jobs on the TV and on radio and on the web all the time, kind of dissecting his life and the way that he worked and, um, you know, there was like a, almost a mania uh, when it came to his attention to detail and his and his uh, desire for control over every aspect of Apple and its products. And I feel like that kind of approach, whether you're selling uh, computers or you're making movies or you're writing books, you know, I'm not I'm not suggesting that you need to be crazy 
but you, you kind of do. You need to have that level of care well, to be great. I, you know, I mean, in the case of Steve Jobs, who I actually wrote a long blog about, but, um, you know, you have a vision and you see it. And it, it's one of those things, you know, it's like I don't really know right now what you're thinking of me and I don't think you really know what I'm thinking of you. It, it's hard to enter the inner consciousness of other people. I think this is one of the hardest things. So for a director, you know, or someone running a company as big as Apple – um, with n- these new innovative products coming out, he had a vision of them, and he he was, you know, he was going to make sure that that vision was realized, even against sometimes insuperable obstacles. When you're making a film, you're dealing with so many, you know, um, intangibles like money and who's going to cast it, okay, and, whatever, yeah. and 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 to maintain and and even Fincher and Payne compromise. Trust me, at some levels they don't want to, but they will compromise. I mean, they may not get to blow up the ship the way they want to, not that Alexander does that. They may not, you know, get that extra week to maybe do reshoots or whatever. I mean, they, they have, but they compromise less. They hold on as much as they can because they see that movie in the head and, it, it, you know, the way they see it, and they're going to do everything they can within their power to realize it. Mm-hmm. And, and and even even the two of them compromise, you know. Well, okay, so the movie gets greenlit. And then there's the casting process. And obviously, you know, as the guy who wrote the novel that the screenplay and the movie is based on, um, you know, that person a lot of times gets excluded from the movie making process. Did you have a desire to be involved? Did Alexander want you involved? Or were you just kind of like, I'm glad to be in your hands. Go make the movie. I'd love to come to the set one day and just kind of like say hello. Like, how did that go? I, you know, I mean, I've written and directed two feature films. And as a result, um, I didn't want to be involved. I mean... You know, it's it's really almost like a, you know, it's almost like, I don't know, 1,600-meter relay. You know, I'm the first guy, and I handed the baton off. Now my analogy is going to, you know, fall apart here because he's going to run the last three legs, essentially. But, you know, you really are handing the baton off, and you're not – first of all, A, if you tried to be intrusive, you know, they would just say – Go away. Yeah, go away. <laughs> fuck you. You know, yeah. whatever. In fact, what's interesting is we're doing the sideways play, which I'm very excited about, and I have total control. I hired the director. This was shocking. I actually interviewed five directors. I thought, oh, this is cool. There's, I mean, it's like I tell people, you know, no screenwriter. I don't care who it is. Can I, maybe J.K. Rawlings can hire the director. I don't know. But, uh, you know, so – and they can't change a word of the play without asking me. Well, right. that, that's news. But Alexander was inclusive up to a point. I mean, he showed me every draft of the screenplay. And um, I didn't really have much much to say. I did – there were a few, few things that I said, and he made – uh, a couple of adjustments accordingly, but I was very careful as a writer not to like write a new scene form or do something like that, which people would do. I was just careful just to say, well, here's something that maybe doesn't work for me. I think this is a scene your editor would cut, or, you know, Maya's famous wine speech, you know, didn't come until the third draft. And after the second draft, you know, Miles was waxing on about Pinot Noir, but Maya doesn't say anything. And I said, wouldn't it be lovely if she had a complimentary speech? But I didn't, I didn't write it, and he wrote it. And so that was his that he like totally. added. Yeah, and even then he tried to cut it in the editing because he, he he thought it was too uh, mawkish. Mm-hmm. He, he wanted to get and even in even in the mix he was like oh, we got to get rid of that it's too mawkish you know they're saying no no it's one of those beautiful moments you know and it made a huge difference obviously for Virginia Matson. 
But she what, was she was terrific in that film. But bear in mind, uh, oh, she was unbelievable. And again, yeah. there was somebody almost uh, hoisted out of obscurity. You yeah. know, she was a star in the in the late twenties, but in her late twenties. I'm sorry, uh, you're right. <laughs> That's been around for a long <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah, right. <laughs> Resurrected from the dead. <laughs> but uh, you know, but her films didn't really take off, and she was really pretty much ghettoized in cable TV movies, women in jeopardy pictures, and th- when that went down, she really was just was nowhere when they well i mean it just makes me think because i mean you know when you're writing a book you do have total control as difficult as is as it is to to actually get the book published and to make a you know any kind of money from the book so that you can that you can continue to write uh you do have control right but then i think of an actor and i think of like virginia madsen and you know like thomas hayden church people that you hadn't seen or you forgot where you had seen them before they hadn't been around in a while and you see them cast properly with good material in the hands of a good director, and you say to yourself, "Where the hell has this person been? Yeah, like why have they not been? You know, they're, they're fantastic, and well, I, they just have to seed. Like as an actor, you have to seed so much control. You need permission from someone else in order to be able to work. Well, as an actor, I could never do that. <laughs> I mean, I don't have any thespian uh, aspirations or skills for that matter. But to go to the dance and have to wait to be asked—that's a hard thing. Yeah, and for Alexander to you know, at one point he was not going to make the movie because he couldn't find his miles. And then he saw, um, I know he had a casting director in New York and he saw, um, is it American Splendor? Yeah. American Splendor at, that had not yet been released. And he mm-hmm. goes, I found my miles. In fact, he was so excited. He called me up. I found my miles. Who is it? It's, uh, Paul Giamatti. Who's that? You know? And so I quickly went on the internet and looked him up. I said, wait a second. He doesn't look like me. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he was wonderful in the film. And, uh, yeah. and, and, uh, and a lot of people almost felt like those characters, were you know they weren't the George Clooney's and you know Jack Nicholson's or whoever these you know the major stars are out there that they almost like walked right into that movie like they were the real guys yeah yeah it's like turnkey yeah really <laughs> and and I think that that made a huge difference in terms of going back to my favorite word verisimilitude it had a a, a real feeling of of truth and reality to those characters as opposed to you know I'm not saying that Brad Pitt couldn't have been a great Miles he's wonderful in Moneyball you know but He's still Brad Pitt. You know, he carries a lot of, you know... Um, Brad Pittness? Yeah, celebrity. You know, he's, <laughs> yeah. he's as much a personality and a celebrity. Um, and I'm sure he decries that the same way that, like, think of all the actors out there who, when they saw Sideways, actors and actresses, thought, my God, that could have been me. I could have been picked out of a lineup. You know, why didn't I get my chance? I, I don't doubt that there's hundreds, maybe even, you know, thousands of people who really had the skill to pull that off. And to be in the right place at the right time, but unfortunately, the economics of Hollywood are such that they think that they're buying, you know, bankability when they cast these certain people, and that's what gets things greenlight. I mean, I don't mean to bring this up, but you know, you take the Rum Diary, which was I was really looking forward to because it was directed by one of my favorite directors of my, one of my favorite films, actually, with Nail and I, which actually Sideways has some parallels to, and it's one of my favorite films. And he hadn't directed in 17 years. Who's Bruce, the director? Bruce Robinson. Okay, yeah. And in fact, the epigraph in my novel Sideways is a quote from the film with Neil and I, which I don't know. I know uh, films have been quoted in epigraphs and novels, and uh, you know from the Hunter S. Thompson novel, which I'd never read. And Johnny Depp wanted to get it made, and it got made. And it was it was a terrible film and a complete commercial face plant, but it got made because of Johnny Depp. No, I'm not casting aspersions. He's a fine actor, but that's sometimes you how know, it goes. How it goes. It, it, you know if if. Look, I've often said, and I tweet this oftentimes, you know, Hollywood is not a meritocracy, you know, unfortunately. But I think Sideways is one case where it really was a meritocracy, but it's owed to Alexander Payne's 
um, perfectionism and the power, the, the combination of that and the power that he wielded at that moment. The timing. At, at that price point and the timing. It, it, it just that I wrote this thing, how it even got to him that Brian Berry, his assistant, woke up one day. He could have woken up and thought, I don't, I don't want to read today. I got a hangover or something. No, he read it and he said to Alexander, you have to read this. He, otherwise, he never would have read This is an unpublished novel, Brad. He never would have read it. So to. was Election, though, yeah. at the time, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, I was. You're in a club now with Tom Parada. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, right. Thank you. It happened. I mean, you know, like that is, I mean, that's unusual. Yeah, I mean, and it I, happened I, twice. I, I've often said that um, if you come to L.A. or New York as a writer, because I don't think it'll happen if you're outside of there. I hate to say it, you know, fans here, but you probably have to be there. You know, you're going to get a chance. You'll meet people. There's tons of agents and managers and out there, and you know, and you're gonna you're gonna have your moment of luck. But you better be good when you have your luck. I got right. really lucky, but I want to feel like I was good too. Where the luck came in was um, everything I told you about my agent coming out to Endeavor. Had he not come to Endeavor, I don't think an unpublished novel gets to Alexander Payne, and mm. nobody else got it. You know, he was very into wine for one thing. And going back a little bit, you know, we did take a couple trips up there together. He really. He, you know, I don't say he uses people, but because that's not the right word, but he, he took everything he could from me. He wanted me to show him all the places, the hitching posts, the wine tasting rooms, the golf courses, all of that. He did his research. He did. Oh, he moved up there three and a half months before beginning principal photography. And he brought up just his location people. And they would go to every tasting room to find exactly the one he wanted to use. He wanted to usually use the ones in the book, but if they weren't quite right for, you know, cinemagraphic reasons, then he would choose something else. He was up there. And then production design people came up and then other and pretty soon you got 200 people up there oh he was up there three and a half months before beginning you know principal photography wow so um i guess like you know one natural thing to ask you is about wine i mean and, and your love of wine drinking i mean like do, do you drink a lot <laughs> uh no actually i mean i mean what happened was in the 90s um you know i was i, I was too broke and um and, uh, you know, I enjoyed wine when I went up to the San Inez Valley. And uh, when I got to, um, you know, when Sideways hit, it was just everything was wine. Come to this wine event and this wine festival. And actually in my new novel, Vertical, it's seven years later and Miles is now a successful author. And a movie's been made of his thing in the wine world. And Jack is on the skids. And Miles' mom has had a stroke, which goes back to other stuff. And so when he gets asked to be, as I was, the master of ceremonies at the International Pinot Noir Celebration, uh, he and his mother wants to not be in this assisted living facility and wants to be with her sister in Wisconsin. He he leases this handicap equipped ramp man and piles in his wheelchair dependent semi alcoholic mother <laughs> <laughs> and and a down on his skids Jack, who's now divorced and has a kid. And Miles, who's, you know, uh, drinking too much and partying too much and has women coming after him, which is what happened to me after. Um, Did that? Oh, it was just ridiculous. How so? Like, how would they come after you? Like, at, at, at events, were you getting hit on and I stuff? I don't know. what. What's the language? <laughs> no, whatever. Say whatever. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I, I mean... The book actually came out seven months before the movie, but we did sell it before the movie was greenlit. But literally, I'd go to a book signing, there'd be three people there. When the movie came out, I'd go to a book signing, there'd be 300 people lined up around just to have me sign their books. My hand would cramp. I'd run out of books. 300 people. You know how many books that is to sign in one day? And, I mean, they, it'd be like a huge wine event. And, you know, I remember I, I, at the time. Always I, wine at the readings, I would bet, right? It, wine this, wine. You're probably sick of wine at this point. Well, 
You know, it's, it, it's funny. I get I just got invited to an event in Naples, Florida. They want to fly me first class out there, and they're gonna they're gonna drink a vertical of Chateau Haubrion, and I'm supposed to write an article for Town and Country magazine. And how can uh, you t- how can you say no? Well, you know, it it just gets to be too much at a certain point, and uh, you know, your tolerance goes up. And people in the wine world, it's well known. They they can pound two bottles, and and it's like nothing to them, you know. And so I've really, really scaled back. I don't really do those kind of events. This is a job, though. It's a writing job for Town & Country Magazine. But uh, I'm I'm pretty abstemious these days, if you want to know the truth. But I will admit, you know, when sideways happen and all these wine events, and you went 10 years being totally broke, and suddenly now you have you have money, and you've got huge wine events and everything else. you got to uh, enjoy it. You know, you, you, you do indulge, and, and, and people, you know, you, you've gone 10 years, and nobody even wanted to go out with you. Nobody wanted, you know, you were pretty alienated going to bed alone every night. You know, women are throwing themselves at you. Suddenly you're 10, 15 years younger because you wrote sideways. I mean, it's strange. Did that know? happen? Women oh, it was, it was, it was, I, I was at, like I said, this one big book sign at the Santa Barbara Harvest Festival, and there were like 300 people, and this one woman came up and said, Rex, I just want to fuck you into a coma. You're kidding me. Yeah, my girlfriend was next to me. You know, and, and what did you she, say? <laughs> Give me I, a minute. <laughs> I said, uh, "I'll take the coma, but not the fuck." <laughs> that was one of my better lines. Wow, that's all. That's like and, the and rock star. That's, that's only one example. I mean, but what happens? And again, I'm not. I'm not that kind of you know guy. I really am not. But uh, you know, I'll be sitting somewhere, whatever. And so I'm like, what do you do? I'm a writer. Oh, yeah, what do you write? Well, I wrote this little novel. It became a movie. What was it? I said sideways, you know. Wham! Their head will turn man or woman 90 degrees. And it's like the film came out yesterday. It's like, that's one of my favorite films of all time. People oh love people love and, that. And I don't, I'm not bragging here. I'm not one of those kind of guys, but it just, it blows me away. And, of course, you know, if it's a couple of women, I'm 10, 15 years younger, and I'm, you know, John Holmes in his prime. <laughs> I don't know. It's yeah. it's crazy. Where were you when I was broke? Yeah, that's, yeah. I, I had a lot of love and passion. Then. Right, exactly. <laughs> this kind of shit always happens, like, you know, like 20 years too late. Well, know? it's one thing to be successful. It's another thing to be – it's attractive to be successful in the arts. Yeah. And, and it's even more attractive if, if there's humor involved. You know, I think that combination is sort of catnip to a lot of women and and, and wonderful women too. But uh, I'm just – you know, I, I'm really so much focused on my work and on my writing and everything else. I'm not – you know, I mean I probably did that for a couple of years, but um, – did you, were you getting like were you getting to the point where you were boozing too much like when you were, when you were out like kind of on this ab- tour ab- absolutely there's no question that I mean I would I'd wake up and I'd have to you know cancel an event and um, you know I, I I was losing days you know and thinking well I've got money in the bank finally I don't care whatever and pretty soon you know people talk about you you know you don't realize because um, I'd never dealt with so-called celebrity. I mean, I'm not a celebrity like Brad Pitt, but when people find out I wrote Sideways, there is definitely a celebrity element to it. And people are watching you. they got their iPhone on you, you know, and um, they think you're going to drink from the spit bucket. You know, you become their monkey. And, and actually in my novel, the new novel, Vertical, you know, they, they get in, they all get in this handicap-equipped ramp van. They head up to Oregon, in route to Wisconsin, and, and one of the big climatic scenes at the International Pinot Noir Celebration, which is a three-day bacchanal of just complete insane boozing, is that, you know, I, I don't want to give the novel away, but Miles, he's, 
you know, for charity, he's dumped into a huge vat of, of Merlot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but I, symbolically, that's kind of the only reason I brought is because that's how I kind of felt. I was like, right. you know, I became, you know, vis-a-vis Miles, Paul Giamatti, the embodiment of wine appreciation. The wine business went from a $40 billion to a $90 billion business after Sideways. Yeah, they, they owe you something, right? Come on. How much you can quantify to Sideways, I don't know. I mean, you take the, 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 the Santa Nez Valley, that area has made not just tens of millions, Brad, but hundreds of millions of dollars. They flock there. They go on sideways tours. They uh, And people think I'm a rich man. I'm not. The guy who owns the hitching post is worth over $10 million, and his food is crappy. You know, uh, and his Pinot Noir is, is, is mediocre. But, you know, he cashed in. You couldn't have greater product placement. There's a tiny little town there um, for people who have been up there called Los Olivos. It's literally two blocks yeah. in every direction. And when I would go up there, there would be like three tasting rooms just in that town. There are now 40. I've, I've said I said the Los Olivos Cafe is that in the is that in the movie? Yeah, it's right in Los. That's Olivos. a great little. Cafe. Oh, that guy he he's sold out every night. He's made millions. They they love me when I go up there. I was like, where's my royalty? I mean, you should you should have your own table. Come yeah, on, I know, I know. People think you need to fight for this. I, I well, <laughs> if I had to do it over again, if I if I hadn't just been look, uh, you know, not to you know to be honest here. I mean, when the movie came out, it actually gladdened me more that the critics. You know, love the film. I mean, it, it still gets a stratospheric 94 at Metacritic.com, which is one of my favorite websites. It's way beyond Rotten Tomatoes. And and the fact that it won over 350 awards, that meant the most to me. But meanwhile, everyone's making money, millions of dollars. Right. And I was, I, wasn't, I was just drinking and looking the other way. And it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I sort of started to get a little smarter about, you know, how to, you know, everyone wanted me to write TV, write screenplays, write your next novel, do this, do that. And it's just, it was too much. It came at me. And, uh, yeah, I should have opened a restaurant in Los Olivos. I could, I could put, you know, have it be a merchandising center and have sideways memorabilia, the likes of which none of them have, like original manuscripts and, you know, and everything else. But, uh, and I'm, I still might do that someday. But, I, you know, it was never, Brad, for me, it was never about money. But then you see other people, it was all about money. Well, sure. Well, yeah. sure. Well, um, tell me a little bit about where you're from. Like, I don't know anything about your bio. Like, where do you come from? Well, I um, I was born in Merced, California, which is east of uh, San Francisco. My father was a captain in the Air Force, and then he left. And um, we moved to San Diego, and he got into the laundry business, of all things. And so I grew up in San Diego. I was basically a surfer. Oh, and, really? Yeah, that's what I did. Surfer, golfer, sports, whatever, big pot smoker. and um, But somewhere around 17... I um, I started reading and I just I got hooked and I'm, I'm I'm somebody who's very intense. I mean, I was so intense into surfing, but as soon as I started reading, I just I, I just was blown away by people D.H. Lawrence, Henry Miller, Arthur Rambeau. I mean, I, I mean Kafka, whatever. And then I got into the University of California, San Diego, and then I went into a, a really intellectual world. And one of the great influences on me was Manny Farber, who's a who died about a year and a half ago. He's a film critic and a painter. And I mean, literally when I was 18 years old, I walked into a film class and I watched nothing but Boonwell. I mean, instead of, you know, the standard John Ford, Howard Hawks, whatever, fine directors. No, Boonwell. And I was watching Fassbinder and experimental filmmakers. And I was just turned on to a whole world. I never went to the beach again. It was just, to me, it was just movies and reading and, and, and discourse. And Do you talking. have a sense of why, why you connected so strongly with it? Uh, you know, I've thought about this a long time, and because I, you know, people have asked me to write, well, I've had this idea of writing an autobiography, My Life on Spec, which is the six-part serialization that might get expanded. But, 
You know, I grew up in, my mother was a very cold mother, and um, there was no culture or art in the family at all. And I grew up middle class in a, a subdivision in Claremont, you know, uh, 10 miles inland from the beach. And, and it was a very alienating existence. And I think maybe, I don't know if it was, I wanted to find something that was missing in my life and I couldn't play music. I tried and I couldn't paint. I couldn't, I didn't draw a stick figure to save my life. And so I think through those authors I was reading, I thought, oh my God, I can find expression for this, this kind of desolation I'm feeling. I really felt a kind of sense of desolation. And I really went there and I went there in a very kind of transparent way. And, uh, you know, thus I was kind of set on a journey. I mostly wanted to make films at first, but, uh, I, the real breakthrough for me, I was writing scripts of different kinds and the movies I was making were, were sort of personal, not, but I wrote when my mother had a massive stroke in the early nineties, I wrote a screenplay. I actually, it was about a character based on David Fincher. Cause I was one of the last writers on alien three and, uh, whose mother has a stroke and he ends up on the road with her to Wisconsin. And so that actually got brought into the sequel to Sideways, and that's a long story. But it was the first time I wrote from a very personal place, and I got a tremendous response to that screenplay. It was optioned for five years and never made. And I have just swore never again I'm not writing about cops I've never met. I'm not writing about people I don't know. I, I'm just not going to do it anymore. You know, I, I, there, has to be, there has to be a personal stake in it. It's not... I think the trick is is not to be, you know, um, a diarist, you know, and that's fine, or a memoirist in that sense. I mean, I want to write fiction. I want to entertain. So it's really a melding of the personal and the real, which I think Sideways had. I mean, the setting feels real. It feels like the author really was there, you know. Yeah, it feels lived in. It feels lived in. Thank you. And it, it feels like he, he knows whereof he's speaking. And, and when I read screenplays, which I rarely do, sometimes uh, in, I get it in novels, less so in novels, but more in screenplays. You just the world just doesn't feel real to me. The characters all talk the same. You know, you need to differentiate voices. So once I did that, I went to an even more personal place. But that's a dangerous place to go, Brad, because you go personal, and when people don't like it, you can you can sink into a say the despair that's way worse than if you just wrote a hitman script. Right. If they don't, because then if they don't like it, they don't like you. <laughs> that's right. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, you feel like they're personally attacking you. You're, sure. You know, I'm saying, look, I went deep into my soul and delivered this. Right. I'm not saying it's, uh, you know, whatever. It's, I'm not saying it's, you know, it's a Pulitzer Prize winning stuff. But I went deep. Give me some credit for that. Well, they don't necessarily. But you know, when Sideways finally came out, and when I saw. The first big screening, I'd seen one or two earlier. Yeah, did you go to the premiere and everything? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, I was invited to some things and some things I wasn't invited to. This, they start to, you know, and this is all in my article. And when it got to the Academy Awards, I was way up in the Raptors. I wasn't sitting with the whole Fox Searchlight group, but, you know, whatever. So, um, but, uh, you know, it's it was it was gratifying to see it for the first time with a large audience. It was 1,500 people in Santa Barbara, and those were my lines up on the screen, and they were laughing so loud. I mean, I couldn't even hear dialogue sometimes afterward. And then four days later, we were the closing night film at the New York Film Festival at the Alice Tully Hall. That was over 2,000 people, and you couldn't get it. They were scalping tickets because there was a buzz on the film. This was four days before it was going to be released. That was electrifying. I can't duplicate that experience. It's just such an incredible high to see... And it's personal. I mean, when Miles staggers out of the hitching post, that's me. Yeah. You know, when Miles is talking to his wife, it didn't happen that way. His ex-wife, and she says she's pregnant, and he knows it's over. I mean, that's me. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's no getting. Did you get now, choked up watching it? Um, 
Like on the first time you saw it or no? I, I get choked up in that. That's a good question. More because it works and because it was validated by audiences and critics. You know, I, I think, again, while everyone was reaching into my back pocket while I was drinking too much and I seen all these people monetize this and make millions and we won't go down that road, I didn't care about that, you know, then. It, it was being validated because I went through such a tough time. I dug really deep. When I wrote Sideways, I was literally ready to just end it all. And um, I, I threw in everything in the kitchen sink, a bad cliche, but I really did. I just threw it all in. The guy who couldn't publish the novel, the guy who was divorced. Right, the fearless. Guy, the, guy, fear, the guy, he drinks too much, you know, whatever. He's just, he's on, uh, he's basically, you know, you know what's interesting is I the play, which is going to be in April, and I'm not plugging things, I'm not one of those kind of guys, but I think people are going to, the play is based on the novel, not the movie, for legal reasons, but they're very close. I think people are going to see something a little bit different because Miles in the movie, you laugh at him, but you don't really laugh at anything he says. And it's a funny movie, but you laugh at scenes and stuff. In the book and in the play, you laugh at stuff he says. He's a funny guy. He says some pretty funny shit. Right, you know? right. I mean, and, and the play may have a little bit more heart. I mean, one of the first things Alexander Payne said to me when, he, when I first met him, he goes, you know what I love about your novel, Rex? And he was all excited. He's a very excitable guy. You know, he's super smart. He goes, they're so fucking pathetic. <laughs> and I and I was like, I quit. I quail, Brad. I go, my, you're talking about me, man. Yeah, right. Watch your mouth. <laughs> yeah, good God, you know. Uh, but actually, probably they are from a lot of people's perspective. But, um, you know, that was just the life I was living. So I guess in retrospect, maybe Miles was pretty pathetic. And the things that they do are pathetic. But in the play, they, I think... Oops. Uh, in the in the movie, I think Alexander did tilt a little to the pathetic, a little bit, you know. And, and bear in mind, I love the movie, and it's great. But in the play, I think you'll see a little more heart, a little more warmth and generosity from the Jack character because it's a little more in the novel. Sure, he still does the transgressive stuff. Right, you right. Know, but uh, anyway. Yeah. Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about Vertical then. Like you – did you you had a book deal with, with uh, Knopf, and then like what happened? Tell me the story about that book. God. Well, after Sideways came out, my publishing agent, a uh, new one now, uh, wanted to do a deal. You know, everyone wanted to do a deal with me, write scripts, do this. And I didn't know what the next novel was going to be. I really didn't. And he read the script that I wrote called The Road Back, which was about the music video director's mother has a stroke, the one that was optioned for five years, and said, Rex, you should novelize it. And I said, I don't, you know, Dan, I don't want to novelize it. I want to rake over old bones. I wrote it 10 years ago. And he, and he said, well, just write a one-sheeter. So... I said, well, I have nothing to lose. I read a one-sheeter, and he calls me up and said, okay, uh, Alfred Knopf just offered, you know, I don't know, 75 grand. It wasn't even that much. And uh, it might sound like a lot to your, you know, uh, your fans here, or, or you know, uh, novelists, because it is a fair amount. But from what I could have made writing screenplays, it's, it was nothing. And I thought, but Knopf, my God, because St. Martin's, who published Sideways, who gave me 5000 for the book, and when the movie came out, did absolutely nothing for it. And this is all in my article. Did absolutely nothing for that book at you all. You would think they'd be wanting oh, to capitalize. I I, we could be, go on for a half an hour about this. I mean, they, in their mind, in fact, actually, I wish I hadn't sold it to them because had I waited, there was pressure on me to sell the book so that it wouldn't be an unpublished novel you know, a movie or whatever, and uh, of an unpublished novel. But had I waited, I would have sold it for over a million dollars. The woman who wrote Legally Blonde, the Reese Witherspoon, that's what she did. She couldn't publish the book, and when the movie came out, she sold it for a million dollars. I probably would have even gotten more. 
So they did no promotion, no publicity. You'd think that book. Yeah, was, you should have waited. You should have waited until I mean, the movie came out and then sold the book. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, but I, I people were pressuring me. And I, okay, I'll, you know, and so they treated me badly. So I thought, Kanoff, this is the creme de la creme of the publishing industry. And so I struggled with that adaptation, of, well, the novelization, I should say, of The Road Back. I mean, a screenplay is, um, I, I liken it to sort of like a stone skipping across water, A to D to, you know, F or whatever. It's really montage, whatever. But a novel is like getting in there hip deep and waiting, and you have every moment, you know. And it was, the first draft was really long, but I thought they would work with me. I'd have my Max Perkins, you know, finally. The, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, and, right. And, and no. No, I mean, I. it took them five months to get back to my first draft, the senior editor who's now the co-president. Five months. And the thing is, A, not only is that a momentum killer, not only is it a confidence destroyer, but you don't know it's going to be five months. Right. And then I got some lame-ass fucking notes, and it was clear they just didn't like what I was doing with it. And, and so I rewrote it, and I was four months in they weren't even responding to me. I, I have a deal with these people. Yeah. Four months. I'm right. Tell me what what's going on here. Did you your, know? What did your agent say? I don't oh, know. He was kowtowing to Kanoff, really. You know, yeah. because they are they're the creme de la creme. So I said, and so in frustration, I said, "What the fuck's going on?" And 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 he said, "Well, you know, I, you know, he didn't really know, and uh, I just got the sense they didn't really like what I was doing." And so I said, "Look, I just want to take." the mother-son story and morph it into a sideways sequel and the son will now be Miles and his mother in the wheelchair. And I, and I had, again, a flare went off my head. And who isn't going to want a sideways sequel? Well, they didn't. They literally did something totally illegal. They prepared a statement saying that in all contracts you have in a novel, it's standard boilerplate upon acceptance of a manuscript after the advance. And they can actually ask you for the first part back. I would have never signed a deal in, in, with screenplays that they have to pay you no matter what it is. Almost if you turn in blank pages, they have to pay you, but not in novels. And they had they, they said they weren't going to publish the book and they wanted nothing to do with the sequel or anything. And so I, you know, I found a, um, you know, a, a, a businessman, a private investor, and I said, I'm just going to publish it myself. And he came through with a lot of money and, um, and we formed a partnership, and he bought out the contract from Kanoff and said, fuck you. I've never been treated, Brad, I've been treated badly in Hollywood, and we could be here for two hours telling those stories. You know, I St. Martin's, I mean, they treated me badly. I mean, the, even after I did the deal for 5000 they called me and said, well, now you have to hire your own outside line editor. Actually, they told me that. I said, I called me and said, fuck that. Tell them, you know, I wish they would, you know, the deal would have gone, you know, whatever. This was a film that now was greenlit by Fox Richlight. Still nobody wanted to, to publish sideways now. And I thought, okay, it's going to be better with Kanoff. I'm actually finally going to be treated like a real, I've arrived. I've got a hit film. And now I'm delivering you the sequel. And the sequel is not the hangover too. It's not just a regurgitation, you know, for crass commercial. It takes these characters to another level. And it goes to a pretty emotional place if people are reading it. They, they didn't want him. I've never been treated so badly in my whole life than by Alfred Kanoff, Random House. And I will say it openly here. I hope this goes out on the internet. I've never been treated so badly. I mean, five months to get back to a first draft from an author that, yeah, you're, I mean, it's, that it's, you're under contract with? It's hard enough to wait for like five hours after you finish a book and you send it to somebody and you're like waiting for them to like respond. It's, it's pain. I mean, if, yeah. if you're like me, I'm, I'm the same way. You just kind of like sit there twiddling your thumbs. But. Five months is uh, torturous. <laughs> well, but again, torturous, uh, but you're under contract. I mean, you feel like they're going to work with you, that they, they chose you in right. a way. And um, 
you know, I, I mean, it was very disconcerting. And I, I went, you know, pretty, a pretty dark place there because uh, I had so many opportunities. And um, But, you know, fortunately, I've come out of it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really ex- – you know, Was it just a function of time? Like did you just kind of get over it eventually? Or did you uh, – I mean, how did you, how did you heal? <laughs> well, basically, I just, you know – I, I pushed myself away from the whole wine world, so I just got out of that, you know, and and pretty much just quit the wine drinking. I mean, I just didn't do it anymore. It's certainly not out in the public world. And just started to really focus on myself. And I don't want to sound like some weird new age person here or anything, but I had to really take a hard look at uh, where I was at in my life. And, you know, you can be bitter about these things. You can be bitter about the fact that the owner of the Hitching Post were $10 million. You can be bitter about the fact that the producer of Sideways got a $200 million hedge fund and blew it on a bunch of unreleasable films, all based on a film that he had nothing to do with getting the book to Alexander Payne. You can, you can be, and he's a multimillionaire, you know, you can be bitter about that, but there's nothing you can do to change it. You know, you can only, I know this is going to sound corny coming from a cynical, sarcastic, self-deprecating guy like me, but I, I can only control what I do each day. And I thought, you know, every day I wake up focused and clear headed, you know, I'll move forward and incrementally, you know, I will reap, whatever, I don't know, rewards I can at, at this point. And, um, you know, I had that moment and it is true. I didn't capitalize on it in the way that many other people did. I should not have signed a deal, even knowing that it was cut off. I should not have signed a deal to novelize a screenplay that I'd written 10 years before when I knew in my gut that I, but, but he twisted my arm and, uh, you know, when you, I, my advice to people out there, when you finally do have a success like Sideways, you know, uh, you know, stay, uh, stay clear-headed, number one, and don't let people talk you into things. You know, I mean, go with your instinct, go with your gut. And my instinct was, I don't want to novelize this, and it got me it was two, three years out of my life that was wasted. So, uh, with regard, just real quick before we we wrap up here, like the with Vertical, do you have hopes for a? Uh... Uh, an adaptation of this one too. You, you think this is going to be made into a movie? That's the number one question I ask. All I the PR say, events. I, mean, I have to ask it. Of course, um, there's a lot of money on the table. The fan base is huge. You know, it's just unbelievable. I've already done the adaptation at the behest of the producer. Alexander has read the novel, said he loves it, but he doesn't want to do a sequel. Fox Searchlight owns the film rights to Miles and Jack in perpetuity. Uh, they are. They revere Alexander Payne. He doesn't own the rights, but if he doesn't want to do it, Paul Giamatti isn't going to want to do it. So as we sit here right now, I mean, so many people want Vertical to happen because they'd love to see Miles and Jack again. But he's going. Well, it's, all, it's also so and hard. We, and we wanted him to give it off to another, hand it off to another director, and he doesn't want to do that. Right. So it's kind of a. Well, it's tough know. too because sometimes, but I, like just to play devil's advocate a little bit, sometimes when a movie is that good and that beloved. There is a sense as like a, as a film lover that you're like, oh, you know, don't, don't mess with it. Do you know what I'm saying? Because right. it's, it's so good on its own. You want to kind of protect it in a way. Yeah, and also Alexander is very protective of his own cinematic legacy, something that, you know, he, that he's carving out a path. You have to understand Sideways was a very personal film. He knows it, and he took it into his soul and personalized it himself. But if he goes back to Vertical... It's really going on Rex's journey, not so much Alexander's journey. And I think I'm not sure that he really wants to do that. And I say, fine, Alexander, let somebody else do it, you know, yeah. because we would love to see it. And it was it was built to be a movie, the novel was. And the screenplay's already there. But you know what? Just like that phone call I got one day when I was about ready to put 
the gun that I didn't own to my head. You know, <laughs> I could get that phone call tomorrow. Al Gunner said, yeah, we've got, you know, Stephen Fears wants to do it. Um, we're, we're going into production. I mean, it could happen like that. You never know. You never know. Well, Rex, it's been a pleasure talking with you, man. Well, Brad, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Okay, everybody, that's the program. There it is. That's Rex Pickett. Go get his new book. It's called Vertical, and it's available now. You can find him online at rexpickett.com. He's at Twitter, at Rex Pickett. Pickett is spelled P-I-C-K-E-T-T. He's also got a Facebook page, so go say hello to him. Uh, go say hello to him over at Facebook if you're a Facebook person. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. I've got a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, tell me some sort of story, pour your heart out, whatever, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. And hey, if you like the show, if you enjoy it, and you're sitting in front of a computer right now, or if you're there at some point in the near future, please go to iTunes and rate and review the program. It takes two minutes of your life. Go to iTunes, find the show, give it a nice rating. Give it a nice review if you like it. It really does help. And here's how it helps specifically. It helps the program get better placement in the land of iTunes, which uh, then leads to more listeners, which is good. So pretty please, if you can take a moment to do that, I would certainly appreciate it. And uh, other than that, uh, what can you say? It's pretty interesting, the whole sideways thing, the whole ride that Rex uh, has been on. And uh, it makes me wonder if sideways is the most successful story about a writer ever, or at least in recent memory. And, uh, you know, I, I could easily be missing something, but I think about like adaptation, the Charlie Kaufman script, or, uh, maybe if you go back further, uh, you have like misery, the Stephen King novel or the shining or something like that. But in terms of critical success, coupled with commercial success, uh, it's hard to think of a story about a writer that's had a bitter, uh, bigger impact than sideways. And, and more to the point, it's hard to think of a story, uh, that, that more accurately and honestly depicts. Uh, life in general, but specifically the life of a writer than sideways. At least I think so. You know, it sort of, you know, it sort of lays it bare. It's not every writer's life, but there are elements of every writer's life contained within it. So uh, that's interesting. What's also interesting is how uh, unlikely the whole thing is, how it happened, how it uh, it managed to make it into the world, and how it penetrated the culture. Uh, how's that for a lurid sexual metaphor? But I do think it's accurate. You know, Sideways penetrated the culture. It got in there somehow. And uh, it's sort of funny, now that I think about it, visually uh, imagining all these people in the world, all these human beings doing all these different things, whether they're writing books or making music or uh, building some sort of widget or making movies or whatever it is. And everybody, to some degree, is trying to penetrate the culture, to take root inside the culture somehow. Uh, writers certainly are doing that and it's difficult to do. And I think there's some sort of element of magic to it that sort of floats around in haphazard fashion, or at least it seems haphazard to me, at least partially. I don't know how it happens. I don't know why exactly, but it happens. And, uh, some stories catch and some stories don't. Some people drop out and some people stay in. Some people shave their heads and some people shave only part of their heads and some people listen to other people get it it's a podcast folks that's it for now i'm back soon thank you for listening and uh shave your head if you want to it's up to you it's up to you it's your choice it's a free country okay (laughs) 